maybe you can better understand now, and I told you this before we ever started, got into chapter 14 and 15. In fact, I I kind of, I guess you could say I prepared you for it months before we ever got here. And maybe you can better see and understand what I told you before uh, we enter these chapters. That these two chapters, without a doubt, uh, are the two of the greatest chapters uh, in the book of the Romans, if not the whole Bible, then really focus on what you and I are supposed to be. Uh, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. We saw that last week. <clears throat> and I told you in that study that uh, he's responsible for everything that we have today in the Gentile church. We call it the, you know, our church, Christianity. And um, these two chapters uh, really define for us uh, who we are. We all like to pretend we're something we're not. We all like to wear our spiritual mask. We all like to put on our spiritual makeup and our spiritual clothes that we try to mask who we really are. But I'll tell you what, the book of Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15 have been good for me personally. And I hope that you can say it's been good for you because it strips us off the mask. It makes us really understand what it means to be Christ-like because we're like everybody else on this planet we get a higher opinion of ourselves than we really should. We begin to think that the rules don't apply to us, but they apply to everybody else. We, we all fall into that trap. And that's why places like Romans chapter 14 and 15 really strips us bare uh, and shows us exactly not only uh, what we are, but shows us and defines for us uh, a little single term that we talk about all the time, but most of the time we don't understand, and that's being Christ-like being like Christ in everything that we do. Now, there was so much in here that before we close this chapter, and, you know, we're going to talk about putting, we're going to start studying about how to put notes in your Bible. Uh, and we're going to cover the whole gamut. I think i got five basic areas that you need to learn on, uh, how to do it. And it'll, it'll make your Bible start to come into focus for you. Uh, and it, what it'll do, it, all the information you get, you won't be losing anything, and it will all be focused and be able to put it in a category that will be able to help you. But I want to I go through some of the major points that we looked at in these two chapters, because uh, I don't want to make sure that you have these in your notes, because these need to be put into your Bible. You need to pretty much dissect chapter 14 and 15 uh, and get a little theme about it in there, and then get the key points on it that you, you always can go back and you can study. It's a great little outline. If you're discipling somebody, it's a great outline to use. If you're teaching somebody the Bible, uh, it's a great outline to use. It just it, it works just about in every scenario. You remember we started in chapter 14. I talked about the theme of chapter 14. The theme of chapter 14 is basically you and I as mature Christians dealing with younger Christians. Bible calls them weaker Christians. And they're only weak in the sense that maybe they haven't come along as far as you and I have in the Bible, so they don't have the benefit of knowing some of the things uh, that you and I know. And he says in Romans chapter 14, 1, Him that is weak in the faith, receive him, but not to doubtful disputations. And we talked about the aspect of doubtful disputations. What does that mean? We saw that it means that you have people in every church and every ministry that haven't got to the place spiritually yet that we have, and, and they don't have maybe the grace that you and I should have. So they may get hung up on something in the Bible that to them is a big deal, but to you and me should be a no-brainer to be not be a big deal. 
And what it's saying basically is, and the theme of this chapter was that that we are not to get into arguments with younger Christians over stuff that really doesn't matter. Now, if you're a young Christian and you know you uh, you uh, you believe that uh, you know that uh, something that is you know, mundane and really is not a doctrine issue, that's fine. You come to me and you say, well, I don't believe in the rapture of the church or I don't believe in the visible return of Christ. That's an issue that you have to understand and deal with. Two different concepts here. And uh, we talked about learning to choose your battles. In the passage here, he's talking about how that uh, it's okay to use his food and holy days. And a younger Christian sometimes, one guy here was a vegetarian and he thought that eating meat and red meat and, and that stuff was not good spiritually. And um, the other older Christian, you know, he, he knows that it's okay to eat. And of course, you find a lot of people like that today. You find dietist Christians that they think that there is a Christian diet. And yet we learn from that that the Bible says that whatever you have grace and, and faith to eat and receive and give thanks for it, it's okay. God's cleansed it. That doesn't mean that you don't uh, uh, be careful with what you eat, and you don't eat the right kind of stuff, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that there's a Christian diet out there that you should follow. And I think there's a lot of good principles in the Bible to talk about good eating, and, and, and there's reasons for everything in the Bible, but you know that that's not really an issue. And then we looked at holy days. And we talked about the fact that uh, there really, for a Christian, New Testament Christian, there are no holy days. That uh, every day is a day that you walk out to serve God and be what God wants you to be. And, uh, and there are no special holy days like there was in the Old Testament. But sometimes you're going to find people who, who want to think that Sunday is the most special day of the week. Because that's the day they go to church. That's okay. They'll grow up in time and realize that you ought to go to church every day, if not in the physical building, at least in your heart. They'll come into that. Those are not things you want to fight over. Then we saw some absolutely incredible great principles that you should have down. We saw the great principle of verse 7 and 8, where it says that none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Verse 8 says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die... We are the Lord. We talked about the simple concept that we all forget, that there's always somebody watching our lives. And your, your job in life is to carry the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an interesting verse back in the Bible that uh, I, in the Ten Commandments that I've always thought uh, was, was misused. And the Bible simply says back there that we're not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, when we think of that in the terms that we, we, we live in, we think of that in the terms of cursing, you know, taking God's name in vain and as a curse word. And I, I, that's definitely wrong, and I'm not saying that it's not applicable to that. But I think beyond that is that if you're saved here this morning, and you're a Christian, the moment you got saved, you took God's name, and you wear that name. And wherever you go, people see you, and they see you as a Christian. And the question is, if you've taken God's name, have you taken it in vain? What are you doing with it? And the Bible says that none of us liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody watching your life. That was one of the greatest principles that ever hit me as a young man growing up. The simple fact that somebody's always watching our lives. Most of the time, we're not aware of that. There's a thing that you get into your life in time as you grow. I call it God consciousness. 
And uh, somebody else may call it something else, but to me, that's what it's always been. God consciousness is simply the fact that you're always conscious of your presence in relationship to the Word of God in God. And you're always looking for those things that uh, are very important in your life. And one of them would be, is the fact that wherever you go, whatever you do, think before you speak, look before you leap, watch where you're going, what you're doing, because there's somebody always watching your life. How many times uh, in my life, and I'm sure this is true in most of your lives, that, that somebody came up to you at work, and they had an issue in their life or a problem in their life. <clears throat> and maybe you have never said two words to this person. Maybe they've never seen you read your Bible, but they've come up to you and they tell you that they know that you're a Christian and they lay out their problem and they ask you to pray for them. And that that is the greatest single evidence that people are always watching your life. If you're a Christian, you can't hide it. And if you're a bad Christian, you can't hide it. And people watch and people see. And it's so important to understand that. The concept that our life is not our own to do with it what we please. Then we looked at another principle in verse 10, didn't we? <clears throat> and boy, this was an eye-opener. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We took three or four weeks on this one, and we really went through every aspect of the judgment seat of Christ. We do that on a regular basis around here, simply because that needs to be always kept before you. If there's any one single thing as a child of God you and I need to stay focused on is the fact that someday you and I are going to give an account and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about the simple little format, sinner, son, and servant, how that it kind of lays out the whole concept in an easy format. We went through in Job chapter 26, and I talked about the question that God's going to even ask at the judgment seat of Christ. We looked at the definitive passage of the judgment seat of Christ, and you had to have these marked in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. They had to be clearly marked as definitive passage, referring them back one to the other. Then we looked at verses 14 and 17 with another great principle where it says nothing unclean of itself. But if a young Christian doesn't see that, and you know that it's not unclean, you don't destroy the younger Christian over something that makes no sense or has nothing or, or, or winds up hurting the work of God. And we talked about the aspect of discernment and discretion. <clears throat> discernment and discretion in its basic form in dealing with people <clears throat> is basically being smarter than the problem. Being smarter than the problem. Keeping your own personal agendas out of it and just looking for the God to get the honor and glory out of it. And, uh, you know, and being smarter than the situation that you're in. Then we looked at verse 16, and another great verse. It says, and let not your good be evil spoken of. And we learned another great aspect of our Christian life, and that was the concept of our liberty in Christ Jesus. I took you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Those are definitive passages on your liberty in Christ. They ought to be in your Bible. <clears throat> And we talked about the fact that when Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the law. And you and I are not under the law. And we can pretty much do whatever we want to do. There's no constraint on us as far as a legal system in the Bible that puts us under some kind of law. But within that becomes the fact that I can do all things, but not all things are wise to do. And it goes back to the other principles. Somebody's always watching your life. You may take liberty to do something that you know you can do that may be a stumbling block for another younger Christian. You may go somewhere and blow it off like, gee, I can go here, but it's a stumbling block to another younger Christian. 
And uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. We talked about the aspect of your liberty in Christ. Just because you have liberty, that doesn't give you the right to abuse that liberty. And then the last verse we looked at was verse 23. And this is the verse that basically just puts us all down on our knees, really. He says, "And, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We learned some great things there. I gave you a description of what sin is. And I showed you that sin, and this is the way we look at it, sin never starts with what we do. We think sin is something we do. And that may be the result of sin, and that may be sin what we do. But the truth of the matter is, sin doesn't start with the act. Sin starts in our heart. When the devil wanted to, when the devil wanted to, uh, when the devil wanted to overthrow God way back there in Genesis one one, the Bible says he was perfect in all his ways until iniquity was found in him. Bible says he lifts that in his heart. I will lift myself up. Sin always starts in the heart, and that's why the Bible says that we're to love the Lord like God with all of our heart, with all our mind, and all our soul, and all of our strength. We went from that and we studied a great study on the progression of faith. Remember, we looked at the life of Abraham. And we studied how that the life of Abraham is such a mirrored picture of your life and my life and our process of growth. Here's a guy that goes from, he is about 175 years old. He starts out when God calls him and he can't do anything right. He makes all kinds of mistakes. All through his progression, he makes mistakes, but he gets in a better, closer relationship with God. And finally, by you get to chapter 22, uh, when he's about uh, 75 years in his life, that he really, 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 uh, excuse me, 99 years in his life, that he really, really, really uh, does the, what God wants him to do, and he comes to the point where he trusts God for everything. Winds up being called the friend of God. I showed you the three stages of his life that match up to the three stages of our lives. There's a stage of his life where he's without God, just like there's a stage of your life that you're without God. Then there was a stage in his life that God called him, and that would match up to the time that God called you and you got saved. And then he goes through a training process, doesn't he? Makes a lot of mistakes, but he makes progress forward. And then finally we see the third stage where he really becomes everything that God wants him to be. And now his ministry really begins. And uh, I, I remember telling you that one of the greatest types of way that you'll study the Bible will be character studies. Character studies of studying the people in the Bible are one of the richest sources of of material that you're ever going to find anywhere in any way that you study. Then we came to chapter 15. And basically, we built chapter 15 around the seven concepts of spiritual maturity. We talked about that what you and I ought to be doing as Christ-like individuals, Christians. And uh, we've been talking about a process of your spiritual growth. And in chapter 15, we see the seven basic concepts that make us mature and strong as Christians. You know, Paul said something one time that I think is very instructive. He said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. And he basically says this, When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
You know, I looked at that at one time in my life, and, and I, I saw uh, as I was putting together, and I taught you before how that there, in the Bible there's seven basic stages of spiritual growth. And young Christians are likened to children. And if you have young children, you know that their young children are dependent on older parents to help them with just about everything in life, much as older, younger Christians are dependent on older Christians to help them with things in their spiritual life. And, but Paul says that he was a child. But he said when he became a man, and that would represent our coming to the spiritual maturity that God wants us to be. It says he put away childish things. Now, I've looked at that chapter a lot of times, or that verse a lot of times, and I've used that verse many, many times. And it really wasn't until this week, as I was correlating this stuff and putting it all together, that just popped out at me that when he says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, as I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. It didn't strike me that in that verse that there's three things. There's three things that he became a man in. And as I looked at that, I thought to myself, wow. And these are the exact same three things that you and I need to grow up spiritually in. Look at the verse. The first thing he says is that uh, the way he spoke. He grew up in the way that he said things. I think that's probably the, the biggest problem that we have as young Christians. Is that we don't learn to speak the things the way that God would have us to speak it. You know, children speak one way, adults speak another. And children come to the point where they say a lot of things that sometimes aren't true, uh, not because they're lying, but because of their imagination carries with it. And uh, so when he, he grew up in the way that he spoke. The second thing that he grew up in was the way he understood things. We talked about that Thursday night, how that understanding in the Bible will always be the key element that puts God in any equation of whatever you're dealing with. And then he grew up in the way he thought. And, of course, that goes back to when you build a relationship with God and you learn the principles of the Word of God, something that I keep before you all the time, that it, it helps you at that point in your life to better uh, think the way God thinks. And, you know, he says, uh, when I was a child, I spake as a child. You know what one of the great characteristics of children are? And if you have young kids, you know this is true, especially if you have multiple kids. And that is that they get into, they get into the, the roughest fights over the stupidest stuff. I mean, that's just, that is just kids. We have our three grandkids over, and, uh, you know, uh, it isn't, and they're good kids most of the time, and, uh, and, uh, but they all, they're just kids. And somebody will get something else, somebody will get somebody else's toy, or they're playing with something, and somebody else will lay it down for a minute, and somebody will pick it up. World War III breaks out. Because children fight over stuff that don't mean anything. And that's a great lesson for all of us. Because we as Christians, when we don't grow up and we're still immature, or we refuse to grow up, we fight over stuff that really doesn't matter. I've seen churches split and get had in the biggest fights you ever saw in your life because they decided to buy new choir robes and, and, uh, and nobody could decide on the color. Half the church wanted brown, the other church wanted green, somebody else faction wanted red, and uh, everybody had their doctrinal reason for it, you know, and uh, when, they, when they got one or the other, everybody got mad. I've seen people that uh, had their special seats in church. And uh, if you're a visitor and you come into that you, and you sit in their seat, you won't get a handshake. You'll get yanked out of that seat so fast you won't know what hits you. I've actually seen people come to the point where they come up and they'll say, that's my seat. 
to a visitor that you're sitting in my seat. And uh, that's immature stuff, you see. I mean, but I've seen it. It happens, man. It happens all the time. So he grew up in the way that he spoke. He grew up in the way that he understood things. And he grew up to be a man in the way that he thought. Then, you know, we talked about the book of Ephesians. And I talked about chapter 4, verse 13, which talks about that our job and your job is to grow up into him, the Lord Jesus Christ, being Christ-like. And then we talked about the, the seven marks of a spiritual mature Christian. And this is where we're at today, going to finish the last two. He talks about the fact that ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. We talked about that's our job. Our job as strong Christians is not to hurt younger Christians, but to help them grow, to bear their infirmities. And when you start working with people and start dealing with people, you're going to see how that really comes into play. Because young Christians, when they first come in many times, uh, not, this is not true of everybody. Some people come in and just fit in like a hand in a glove. Others have to struggle through things to get their feet on the ground. Our job is to help bear those infirmities. The second thing we saw was, was in verse 2, and that we're not to please ourselves. The job of the work in the ministry is not to please yourself but is to please those that you're working with. And I don't mean that you become a, as I remember saying this, that doesn't mean that you become a man pleaser in what you preach or what you say, but you please them as far as helping them grow. Then the third thing we saw was the concept of edification, edifying others. That means you strengthen them, you give them uh, help, you encourage them. When they do something well, you, you broaden it and let them know that, uh, that you're encouraging them in what they're doing. And then the one that we looked at was in verse 7, receives others. We talked about that, how that deals with the aspect that no matter what somebody's done or where they're at, what they've been involved in, that our job, the bottom line of the church is restoration. And it's to receive others and to help them get back where they need to be. And then the one we finished on last time was verse 14, to admonish others. And we talked about the concept of admonishment. Now that brings us up and recaps the important points of where we've talked about. You should have those things marked in your Bible. Now today we're going to look at the last two and we're going to close this chapter. And I want you to understand this. In reality, and this is true of, of a certain books in the Bible, we have a chapter 16 left. We have a chapter that we have to deal with yet, chapter 16. But the truth of the matter is the book really closes in, at the end of chapter 15. All he does in chapter 16 is say goodbye to some people, recognize some people. I'm not saying that there aren't some great principles in there. We'll talk about those. There's one of the greatest concepts of ministry that you need to understand in, in chapter 16. But as far as the instructional teaching is concerned, it's over in chapter 15. He has nothing more to give us in a progressional study. It's now closing out and there's some good things there. But the book's really over in chapter 15, much like the book of Acts. The book of Acts has 28 chapters in it. But if you know your Bible, you know that technically speaking, the book of Acts is over in Acts chapter 20. What happens in Acts chapter 20 is Paul is at Ephesus and he's saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus and then he's going down to Jerusalem, which is against God told him what to do. And so from chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28, that all deals with Paul going to Jerusalem, getting thrown into Huskow, and then making his way finally to Rome where they finally kill him. The end of the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 20. And that starts what we know as church history. 
You come to Revelation chapter 2, the first church that it talks about is the church at Ephesus. That's exactly where Paul was in Acts chapter 20, see? So there's some books in the Bible that do that. And of course, you need to know that in, in, in the book of Romans, for all practical purposes, uh, the teaching structure is over in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, he says his farewells, what Paul was famous for doing. And we'll talk about that when we get into that next week. Now, I'm going to begin reading here in Romans chapter 15. So let's turn to it. We'll pick it up here in verse 24. <clears throat> Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way a thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Archaea to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this and have sealed uh, 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 to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, that I shall come in the fullness of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God and may be with you, uh, be refreshed. Now the God of peace uh, be with you all. Amen. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And as we look at the last part of this great chapter, and look at these last two great concepts. We pray, Father, that you'll give us the wisdom, the insight into everything that we need to see and understand. We love you, Father, and we thank you for what you've given us, and we thank you for our church, for the Bible that you provided for us, and for the good people that, uh, that, that are here. We pray, Father, that uh, as you continue to build leadership in this church, as we saw yesterday with the ladies and last week with the men, Lord, we're just so thankful for the fact that there's men and women in this church that that let none of your words fall to the ground, that they want to be everything that God wants them to be. And help us, Father, to continue to feed that and to grow that and to cultivate that. And we thank you for all the new ones that were there yesterday, Lord, and uh, some 60 ladies that uh, came out to be part of what we're trying to do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing I want you to see here, and I think this is something that you want to uh, always remember about Paul. Uh, Paul was a very direct guy. Once God met Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul's life has totally changed. He's a, he's a picture of what your life and my life should be from that point on. Up to that point, he was persecuting Christians. His job was to go find where Christians were, put them in jail, and, uh, and they were persecuted by the Jews because of, uh, of their new faith in Christ that the Jews utterly, uh, you know, rejected. But when God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus, he was changed. And it's a picture of your life and my life when we got saved. And whenever you go after that and you study Paul's life, wherever he goes, wherever he does, whatever he writes, Paul has one thing on his mind. It's people. 
You see it in everything that he says and everything that he does. He can't close out a letter without addressing eight or nine different folks that have meant something to him in the ministry or who are doing something in the ministry. And it, for me, it always set the example of what my ministry needed to be about and to be around, and that is people. I don't know how pastors justify what they do by ministering to inanimate objects. You gotta, the ministry is people. And we're going to talk about that aspect today because uh, when you look down here at verse 25 and verse 27, you find what the, the next, the sixth thing is that we need to look at. But verse 27 says this, It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are, for if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. Now, the next thing we're going to look at on our seven concepts is the fact that a strong Christian ministers to people. Ministers to people. Now, I know the word minister, you know, is a word that is another loose term that we really probably don't understand. I, I want to, before I explain that, though, I want you to look at verse 7 because down here in verse 27, it talks about ministering unto them in carnal things. Now, we think of the word carnal as a bad word. When the Bible talks about that we're not to be carnally minded, that we're not to be do carnal things, carnal things or worldly things. But not all worldly things are bad. <clears throat> you're sitting here today in a carnal state in one sense, and that is you're still in your physical body. You not, may not be in a carnal sense as your spiritual condition, but your physical body is you are in a carnal body. Carnal means that you are in a physical body. <clears throat> and what he's saying here is this. He's saying that not only is it our duty to minister people in spiritual things, but he says also in carnal things. And this leads us to a great, great, great concept about ministry that we want to talk about today. Now, for those of you who work with me in ministry, and many of you do, there's many of you who want to get involved in working with this ministry. You've expressed that desire to me. May I say this to you? Learn what I'm about to tell you today. Because I'm going to define for you today from the Bible sense what ministry really is. I want you to go out of here today understanding that concept. Now, in a particular case here, let's put it in a historical context. What he's talking about here is ministering to them carnally, is the fact that the Jews down in Jerusalem, the, Christian, the, the, the Christians, the, the brethren that are in Jerusalem, they're going through a very tough time right now. There was a famine in Jerusalem, and it was a very severe famine during this period of time. And they're under a lot of persecution, not only from the Romans, but also from the Jews themselves. And they're going through a very tough time. And uh, they don't have a lot, and they're suffering greatly. Now, you want to put another reference in here. All this material that we're talking about here is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And you want to go back and read that and make your applications back and forth because this is talking about the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and that'll be your cross-reference. But what he's saying basically is this. He's saying that, you know what, we got salvation from the Jews because John chapter 4 says salvation is of the Jews. And he said, because they ministered to us and gave us salvation, we not only want to minister them spiritually, teach them the Bible, 
But when they have a need, we want to minister to them in carnal things or physical things. And, of course, what they're doing here is they take up a collection. They take up an offering. And they send that offering down to the poor saints in Jerusalem who are having a very tough time to help them, to give them some kind of relief. And that's what I say. Paul makes a reference to this uh, in Second uh, in, in Corinthians, uh, and it's uh, chapter 9, which is the great chapter on giving. And uh, it's a great concept. But when we look at this passage, it helps us better understand um, what ministry is and how it's defined. Now, let me ask you a question. I'm not looking for an answer, but answer it in your own mind. What is real ministry? Now, you've heard me say it many, many times, that it's people. But that's not, that's not the lowest common denominator yet. I know the ministry is people. We don't minister to chairs. We don't minister to poles. We don't minister to, we minister to people. Now, we talk about having a preaching ministry. What does that really mean? We talk about having a teaching ministry, a discipleship ministry. We talk about establishing a counseling ministry. We have an athletic ministry. But in reality, those are words that we use. It's like the word born again. It's like the word saved. A while back, we started a, we started a study um, you know, uh, of, of the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And in that study, we, we focused on uh, the aspect of what it really meant to be saved. We understand the terminology. We know we say born again, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm washed in the blood. But if the average Christian, if you sat them down and said, explain to me exactly what that means and how that relates to what happened to you when you got saved, most people couldn't do it. So what we did is we took a series and we talked about the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. What made you different before you were saved to a split second after you asked Christ to save you? And we have went through that. We have a lesson on that. My wife taught the ladies on that, and I'm going to have her teach the ladies again on a, on a, on a Saturday in the fall uh, for all the new ladies. But uh, it's imperative that you understand that. And did you understand what saved really means? Born again really means. But it's also imperative that you understand about what the real concept of ministry means from a Bible sense. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but every man and woman on planet Earth have three basic needs. Three basic needs. And in those three basic needs is really what it means to minister to somebody. And I want to talk to you about the three aspects of ministry. And in this, you'll see ministry defined. Now, when God made you, we know that God made you in a trinity form after himself. Because sitting here today, if you're saved, you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And because you have a body, soul, and spirit, and remember now that three in the Bible is the number of completion... When God does something in a complete form, he does it by a system of threes. When he does something in a perfect form, he does it by a system of seven. Those are all things that we've learned in the past. But three in your Bible is the number of completion. So when God made you and made you complete to do the work of him for him, he gave you a body, he gave you a soul, and he gave you a spirit. And uh, let me say this. We all have these same three basic needs. 
And ministry is understanding how, with the Word of God, to fulfill those needs in a person's life. God and God alone is able to fulfill you in those three areas. And through the ministry of the Word of God, as a Christian, we should understand these three aspects and be able to use discernment and discretion when you're starting to work with somebody. I don't know if you know it or not, but as Christians, we are much like a doctor. And uh, as a doctor, if you ever go to the doctor, uh, you know, a doctor follows a pretty, what, pretty, a pretty standard approach to things. And uh, what he does is the first thing he does is he listens to you. And then after he listens to you, based on what you say, he makes a diagnosis of what's wrong with you. Then after he makes a diagnosis, he'll prescribe a prescription for you. And if he's any kind of doctor, then he'll follow up with you after care, making sure that what he gave you is working and everything is following right along the line. Now, bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, that's what you and I ought to be doing. It was no accident that Jesus Christ was called the great physician. In fact, you ought to go through your Bible sometime and, and look at the medical terms that are, and how they're used in the Bible. You know that there's something in the Old Testament called the bomb of Gilead. You know what the bomb of Gilead is? The bomb of Gilead was a, was a salve that came from, from Gilead that when people had some kind of injury or people had some kind of hurt uh, physically, that something from th- this place in Gilead put together a, a, a salve that they put on whatever the problem was and it helped heal them. And in the Bible, the balm of Gilead, the salve that you put on some kind in your arm or your leg or whatever that helped heal it is a picture of the Word of God. You're going to find that the Bible talks about healing, not in the sense of of the healing that the charismatic crowd talks about, but you'll find that the Bible talks about there's a time when the nations get healed. There's a time in people's lives right now that you may be going through some great distress in your life. Something may have happened in your life and something may have transpired that has really got your world upside down. And uh, there has to be a healing process that you go through. You ought to go through the Bible sometime. You only find the word medicine two times in the Bible. You ought to look at the context of those two. We're not talking about We're not talking about uh, physical medicine there. We're talking about, again, the Word of God. And, you know, we talk about biblical counseling. We talk about what it really is and how that, as you get to a certain point in your life where you really become uh, effective in dealing with people. Um, I deal with people all week long. I I have since I got into the ministry. I've I've dealt with every scenario, every circumstance, probably a hundred times over. I have never had a new case of a new problem of anything for the last 20 years, 10 years, whatever. They're always the same. They just vary a little bit. But when you start to talk about ministering to people, the real definition of ministry is understanding the three basic needs that people have. And every problem they have is going to be in one of those three areas. Your job as as a Christian physician is to diagnose in their life from the word of God what area or many times multiple areas. Your job as a Christian is to be a continuance of the great physician. 
you hurt you help people who are hurting, you diagnose their problems, and then what else do doctors do? You deliver babies. Except these babies are spiritual babies that are born again. And many of you in time you need to become the attending position by which somebody is born again. It's all there. Now let's talk about your the three needs that we all have. We all have physical needs. Remember I told you you were a body, soul, and spirit? All right. You have a body. It's a physical body. It's a carnal body. Therefore, you as an individual, I as an individual, are going to have physical needs. All right. We're also a body, soul, and spirit. Then our soul is going to have spiritual needs. And that spiritual need is going to be the fact that uh, your soul is the spiritual part of you, and it has spiritual needs. But then you have a spirit, and the spirit will always line up to your emotional need. What does the Bible say? He that has no rule over his own spirit like a city broken down without walls. Your body represents, represents the physical needs that you have. Your, your soul represents the spiritual needs that you have. And your emotional stability represents the, or the emotional side or the needs that you have represents your spirit. Now, I told you last week, did anybody look it up? I'm going to ask you. Don't, I told you last week that for those of you that sing and you sing in church, uh, that you go back and find out in the Bible where it's defined and what, 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 uh, what, uh, what music is supposed to do. Did anybody go back and, and look it up? You did? Okay, hang on. Anybody else? I'm so I just knew that you would. I just don't know why that is. Now, I don't know if you got the right verse, but the fact that you did it, I'm going to ask you here in just a minute. Ooh, I can see it from here. Anybody else? All right, what's the verse that you get? Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 23. And what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23? David went and ministered to King Saul, and he delivered his soul from evil. That's right, through music, right? See, so she got the verse there in 1 Samuel 16 that talks about the fact that Saul had a troubled spirit. It really was an evil spirit. And so what David did, David come in and he played songs. Obviously the Psalms are songs that he made up. And when he did that, the music ministered and the evil spirit left and the spirit from the Lord came back. So that is the definitive passage in the Bible that tells you that your music doesn't minister to the flesh Oh, but it does in so many churches today, doesn't it? Huh? You see, when you don't get the Bible for your definitions, you're going to have some. You're going. I've never understood why you have to have a, a a praise band, or you have to have four or five people up there in front of everybody who lead in the in the prayer worship part of the service where you sing. And uh, you know what? It's the fact that if you got to have four or five people up here to help you praise God and, and, and sing to God, you're really in trouble. The Holy Spirit of God inside you ought to be enough. And those people stand up there, you know, and for them it's Saturday Night Live. I mean, they sway back and forth and they put their heads back. And did you ever see, and most of you never probably been in this, but years ago when Bible colleges, they all had singing groups. Maybe they still do. I've been out of the circle for so long now. They used to have singing groups. And those singing groups were the cleanest young people that you ever saw in your life. I mean, they had the hair cut right. The girls had the right left dresses on. I mean, they were absolutely, really looked good. 
And they had a big bus, Liberty Baptist College, you know, Tennessee Temple, you know, uh, NoHo, you know, all these things. And I went around everywhere and everywhere, you know, uh, you know, you know, rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and, you know, total loss at Holy Cross, you know, the whole thing. And they were, they would go everywhere. And they'd go into churches and they were for recruiting. Because the parents saw how clean the kids were. They saw their testimonies. They saw all that it was, and it, 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 was a, it was spoke well of the school. So all the parents, you know where this is going, that when they send their kids to college, it's going to be to that college because they want their, those kids singing represent what the college is supposed to turn out. It was the most phony show you ever saw in your life. It's, it looks good if you're just there for one thing. But when you go to the next church and the next church and the next church, and, and the testimonies are the same, they cry in the same places, and, you know, they all sing together, and then the guys are over here, and the girls are over here. Because in Bible college, the girls and the guys never get together. Well, they do. They just don't ever know they do. So they're separated. The girls, four or five girls over here, four or five guys over here. A guy's got the same kind of suits on, girls got the same kind of dresses on. And they're all singing together. And then the guys, you know, the guys will stop singing and the girls will sing. And choreography to the hill. As soon as the girls start to sing, every guy puts, has one hand on the mic, grabs the cord, turns and watches the girls. When the guys start singing... Choreography, the girls look at the guys and stop singing, and they look at the guys. It's as fake as a $3 bill. <laughs> Let me tell you something. That doesn't minister to your spirit. That ministers to your flesh. Most music in churches today minister to your flesh. That's why they call it Christian rock. You can't, real Bible-based, real Bible-based music is built, Colossians chapter 2, on the Word of God, clear 3, the Word of God and the doctrine in the Word of God, because music is supposed to minister to your spirit, not your soul, and certainly not your flesh. But we've lost that concept today. So you have physical needs, that's your body. You have emotional needs, that's your spirit. And you have spiritual needs. Now, let me just jump back into the problem here. We all have those needs. You don't have four. You don't have two. You don't have six. You all have three. You're not the exception to the rule and have a fourth one. You only have three. Now, here's what happens, just so you know. Put this together. Here's what happens. When you try to fulfill those three needs outside the Word of God... And you as an unsaved man or an unsaved woman or even a saved person who's out in the world and not doing what's right with God, when you try to fulfill those three areas outside of God and the Word of God, you can put one big word down in capital letters, it's disaster. Because you're feeding something with the wrong stuff and it simply will not work. Let me ask you a question. I got a little cup of water here. Less a little bit of an ice cube. You know, the greatest thing in the world we take for granted is this. You realize that? You realize if you go out on a hot day and you mow the lawn or you played ball last night, 
and we all went over to eat someplace, and, uh, which we did, and uh, you gobbled down uh, two or three Coca-Colas, and, uh, or there you have your power drinks, you know, that, uh, that uh, restore all the vitamins to you. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you get really thirsty, you have an iced tea or you have a lemonade or whatever your preference is. Do you realize that in all the substitute stuff out there that you drink, you realize that nothing will satisfy you and quench your thirst more than water will? You know why that is? Because made your, God made your body that the natural thing of water that God put down here has no smell to it. At least it shouldn't have. It has no taste to it, unless they put too much chlorine in it. it. That is the only thing that it has no color to it. It has no flavor to it. But it, it is completely bland. It isn't whirly. It isn't dressed up. It isn't something that it's, it's your favorite color. But it is the only thing that will satisfy your thirst. And you know why that is? Because water is a picture of the Word of God in the Bible. And just like you can drink your power drink, you can drink your iced tea, you can drink your Coke, you can drink whatever you want, and it will never satisfy or quench your thirst. There's only one thing that God uses when he made you that will cleanse your body and get the impurities out of your body, and that is drinking lots of water. And as a spiritual sense, there's only one thing that will get the impurities out of your body, and that is drinking God's spiritual water, the Word of God. You putting all the stuff of the world into your life, trying to fulfill these three things with that, it'll be a disaster. Absolute and total. And of course, this is the basic fundamental concept of ministering to people. Fixing their three areas and getting them into a healthy relationship and being able to discern being able to discern between uh, uh, which one of these things that's an issue. Now, let me say this, and I, I hear this all the time, and it drives me nuts. When it comes to working with people, we get this idea that because we were very worldly before we got saved and we were out in the world and did everything, you know, that, that, the, that the world does, that that gives us an edge up on helping people with the same problems. You've heard me say it many, many times. You cannot, you, cannot, you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that caused those problems. So when you start to work with me or you want to help me, your personal background and experience of where you've been and what you've done and how many drugs you took and how many this and you smoked that and you drank this means absolutely nothing in helping me get somebody down the line. That may be good, look good on your resume, but it means absolutely nothing because the only thing at the end of the day that is going to help anybody get out of those things is recognizing they have problems in those three areas and being able to, through discretion and discernment, call up the biblical principles, our spiritual prescriptions. When somebody sits down and lays out their heartache and lays out their problem, I listen to them and immediately, while they're talking to me, I'm not looking back in my life and saying, well, I did that or I didn't do that or yeah, I did that, but I did it better than you did. I mean, I did all those things. No. You know what I do? I simply start formulating the prescription, the biblical principles from the bomb of Gilead that I'm going to apply to their wounded soul, their wounded spirit, or their wounded flesh. And uh, those three things will manifest themselves in different ways. And we're going to talk about those here as we come on through this. So you need to get it through your head that it isn't your past experience of the world that's going to help anybody. It's learning those biblical principles. You know what it is? Here's what you do. The three L's. You learn them, principles. You live them, then you lay them out. 
And I, that's just where it has to go. And you are as worthless to me as anything as a, as a busted garden hose without being filled with the principles of God in your life and knowing how to use them. That's why everything we do, we build around principles. Now, if you wouldn't this morning, let me broaden this to even more that you might better grasp it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of do a couple of variance things here, but I want you to see this, how it all ties together. Now, one of the number one problems you're going to be in ministry with, bar none, the number one issue in ministry that you're going to be faced with is marital problems. And I want to tell you that all marital problems and issues will stem from this same area. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the thing that we don't understand that when we talk about ministry, and we talk about getting involved in ministry, plain and simple, that your marriage is your first ministry. Uh, because you, your marriage is your first ministry, you can't make that one work, you'll never get to the other one. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, a great principle. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the house of God? It's just that simple. In the failure of marriages, 100% of the time, not 98, not my famous 99.99999, 100% of the time without exception will be a failure in these three areas. Here's what men don't know. Here's what as somebody ministering to couples in marital issues need to know. The failure of every marriage will be simply based on that a woman has physical needs. That's her body. She has emotional needs. That's her spirit. And she has spiritual needs. That's her soul. The husband on the other side will have the same three basic needs. He'll have physical needs. He'll have emotional needs. And he will have spiritual needs. Ah, here lies the problem. They may have the same three issues. Physical needs, spiritual needs, and emotional needs. But they're not met the same way. And boy, if you want to know where marital problems start, it starts with a husband or a wife who does not understand that First of all, they, most husbands are absolutely oblivious, as most wives are absolutely oblivious, that their spouses even have these three issues. They think that they can't get along because of this or because of that. They do not see. They do not see that the fundamental problem in every relationship will be the fundamental problem in our life is that we have three basic needs. And when those three basic needs are not met, you're going to have issues. They're not the same. The woman's physical needs are different than a man's. Her emotional needs, her spirit is totally different from a man. You guys get out there on a ball field and you smack each other around or get on a basketball court and somebody gets a little gruff and somebody else gets gruffer and you push each other around and you smell each other's breath for a while and then, you know, uh, what do you do? You pull out the other guy, shake their hand and say, that's all right, good job, you know? And you go on and you go out to eat and you have fun and you forget about it, you see? And because you can do that when you hurt somebody or say somebody or do something to somebody, you think you can do that same thing with your wife and she just forgets it like you do. You see, a wife's spirit is much more crucial than a man's spirit. And most bozos don't know that. So they'll say things to her, they'll crush her spirit, they'll hurt her some way in in her spirit, and then come back and say, well, I'm sorry. What's the matter? I said I was sorry. 
I'm sorry. Can we have sex now? I'm sorry. No, that's the way men think. Ladies, amen? Oh, thank you. Did you say amen? Did she say amen? Stop. Did she say amen? Did anybody watch her? Did she say anything? Oh, well. Oh, boy. Well, thank you for being here today. Have a nice 4th of July. She has spiritual needs. And they're different than a man's spiritual needs. Men are oblivious. Women are oblivious that they even have these needs. And this is what caused the problem. They're not the same. Now, as a Christian, I have the same three needs that need to be fulfilled by my relationship with God and the Word of God. And as individuals, as a child of God, and in my relationship with Him, they have to be only fulfilled through that. And now here's what you want to remember, and here's how you want to put it together. Remember Ephesians 5? That when he talked about the concept of the church, what did he use? He used marriage. Now I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you something that is, will absolutely revolutionize your mindset, if you're paying attention, to not only your own relationship with your husband and wife, but your ability to be able to discern and work with people who are having issues. Because this is where it really lies. And this never gets taught today because nobody knows this today because nobody believes that book anymore. But you have three basic needs. And in your marriage relationship, you have three basic needs. And they're connected if you're a Christian because you remember that marriage is the earthly picture of what our relationship should be with Christ, the bride and the bridegroom. The model for marriage is also the model for ministry. Now, here it comes. Just as Christ, my husband, is the strong leader in my relationship and I'm the weaker vessel, Christ knows that I have needs in these three areas. Christ understands that I have physical needs as the weaker vessel. I have emotional needs as the weaker vessel. And I have spiritual needs as the weaker vessel. Ah, but we're not done yet. Now, here's the part you probably never understood. Christ has those same three needs. Do you know that? It's hard for us to believe that Christ would have, that Christ would have physical needs. What does he need? You're saying, Bob, you're telling me that, that, uh, that Christ has emotional needs? You're, Bob, you're telling me that Christ has, he has spiritual needs? Yeah, he does. And the fact that you don't know that probably suggests that you're not doing your part. Now, here's how it works. I'm the weaker vessel. He's the stronger one. He bears my infirmities. But because I'm the weaker vessel, what does he do? He meets my three spiritual needs first. And then what do I do? Once I grow up, 
I meet his three needs. Want to know what they are? You say, what in the world could Christ have a physical need for? Well, I'll tell you. He needs a body. A physical body. See, he had one when he was here. But then he went back to heaven. What did he tell his disciples? Greater things that you do than I. He picked 12 men to carry this thing. And they were supposed to, supposed to fulfill what he didn't do. You know what he's looking for today in a physical sense? You know what physical need Christ needs? He needs your body to be a living sacrifice for him. To do for him what he is not doing anymore. Because he thought he'd have a body to do it in. Oh yeah. Didn't think about that did you? He has a physical need. That physical need is a body. He needs a body to do what he wants to do. He has a message to get out, but no body to get it into. That's why we've been talking about your body being a living sacrifice and giving those things to him because he has his physical need is a body. He needs a body. And when you do, when you, when he strength, when he meets your, your physical need first, he gives you everything you need. He gives you a job. He gives you an income. He gives you a home. He gives you a car. My God shall supply all of your need according to the riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He did all that for one reason. So you would grow up and, and become strong that he would meet that need physically and then you would meet his need physically and become his body. Don't they, call it the, don't they call the church the body of Christ? He has a physical need. It's a body. It's a body. Now you say, well, boy, you got through that one, but how in the world does Christ have emotional needs? I thought he was the rock. I thought he was... I thought he was... I thought he was... He was the rock of ages... The same yesterday and forever. How does, how, does, how does Jesus Christ have emotional needs? Well, I don't know. My Bible says that he's a high priest, but he is touched with my infirmities. So he feels something. How can you read the Song of Solomon and not see him pouring out? We talked about it Thursday night. How can you read Song of Solomon and not see him pouring out his emotions to you, the church? I mean, when Lazarus died in John chapter 11, did he not weep? You see, I know he has emotional needs like he's got physical needs. Because the physical need is he needs a body. And when you don't fulfill the physical need, you know how, you, you know how he gets, you know how you never fulfill the emotional? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, when you don't do what you're supposed to do, you grieve. That's an emotion. You grieve him. We talked yesterday about making hard decisions, didn't we, ladies? And the guys before last week, making hard decisions. Being able to make the hard decisions within ministry that are not popular. And I told you that the reason why some of you or many of you will never be great leaders is not because you make bad decisions, but because you'll never learn to make the hard decisions. And the reason why you won't is because you're always worried about hurting somebody's feelings. Now, what are you going to do with that? you more worried about hurting your friend's feelings, and care nothing about hurting God's feelings, that verse says you grieve him. That's an emotion. 
So he has physical needs. He needs a body. And when you don't fulfill that body, then you don't fulfill his emotional need and you grieve him. You say, well, you slipped by that one. But how in the world does he need to be ministered to? Well, let me just show you. Maybe you don't know as much as you thought you knew about your relationship with Jesus Christ. church at Antioch, you know, is the first church found in Acts chapter 11 where they're first called Christians. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. I think it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible because it says, as they ministered, the church at Antioch now, Acts 13, 2, as they ministered unto the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas, Saul, for the work whereunto I have called thee. They're not ministering to the world first. They're ministering to the Lord. Do you even know how to minister to him? Do you even have an inkling of how you as a New Testament Christian fulfill his spiritual need? Hey, God is a body, he is a soul, and he's a spirit. His body with Jesus Christ, his soul is God, and the spirit's the Holy Spirit. He made you after himself. And just like you have three needs, he has three needs. And the model is simply this. He meets your needs as a weaker vessel, as his bride, as his wife. He meets your three spiritual needs first as a weaker vessel. You were to grow up and then meet his three needs. You become his body, you do not grieve him, and you learn that your first ministry is ministering to him. If I would pass out a piece of paper or come around here to some of you older Christians that's been around for three or four years and simply ask you, how do you minister to him? You wouldn't even have a clue. You think it's going to church. Now, going back to your three basic needs. Being able to discern in somebody's life what those three needs are and being able to meet those needs on that basis. That's ministry. But it only comes as God takes and meets your three needs and then you meet his three needs. Then you have the ability to meet the needs of others. Until that time, you are wasting your time and you're wasting my time. Your experience. What you been. You're an idiot. Now here comes the model, boys. Plain and simple. Model, marriage is the earthly model, is it? Is that what it is? Is that what it says? Does he say this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church in Ephesians 5? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Christ met my three spiritual needs first by being my spiritual leader. And then I responded to him to fulfill his. Now, here's the model, boys. Husbands have to be the spiritual leader and fulfill the wife's spiritual needs, emotional needs, and physical needs first. And when you do that first, then she can fulfill your spiritual needs, your emotional needs, and your physical needs. No, I know you don't like that. I'm not thrilled about it. 
Somebody says, well, in Catholic situation, Bob always takes the women's side. No, you're wrong. I just take the Bible side. The model is Christ as your spiritual leader, the strong one, bore your infirmities and met your three needs first, and you're supposed then to turn around and meet his. And husbands, when you meet your wife's first pre-spiritual needs first, and you emphasize that first, then she will turn around and grow up and meet yours. Thinking and asking any other way, you're an idiot. The model set. Your failure will lead and fulfill, uh, your failure to lead and fulfill those three areas will be the failure of your marriage. And that doesn't mean you get a divorce. I've seen couples who are married for 35 years and they can't stand each other. I've seen couples who are married for 40 years and deep down inside, she, she can't stand the guy. He can't stand her. And they're saved. Why is that? Because he, where would we be today? Let me just ask you, where would you and I be today if Christ didn't meet our three needs first? Where would we be? Where would we be today if God waited for you and me to get those three things done in our life before he reacted to us? I'll tell you where we'd be. We'd be in a bigger mess than we're already in. No, the model set. He, as my spiritual leader, met my three needs first. Then I grew up based on that and learned how to meet his. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. This is why the Bible says that husbands, be not bitter toward your wives. We just don't get it. We just don't get it. Now, moms and dads, that same concept goes right down into your children. This is not about marriage. This is a broader perspective. It goes right down into your children. You as parents are supposed to be the adults. You're not just to be two more children in the mess. You have a you have a obligation as the spiritual leader, the strong one. You want your kids to do certain things. You have certain things that you want them to do. You gotta do them first. You say, "Well, my kid won't read the Bible." Cause you won't read the Bible. Well, my kid won't study the Bible. You won't study it. When's the last time your child saw you laboring over the table over something God wanted, you wanted God to give you? It all rises and falls on leadership. He's the leader. We're the weaker vessel. He met my three needs first, then I'm going to meet his. I'm going to be his body. I'm not going to grieve him any more than I have to, and I'm certainly going to find out how to minister to him. And if you don't know that today, I wouldn't spend one more day on this planet till you find out how to do it. I'm sorry, don't slip that in my hand. It was a great effect, I think. Did I hit you in the face? I didn't? I'm going to. Here we go. Not one more day. Not one more day. Not one more day. Do 
you find out how to minister to him and you're going to minister to other people? Oh, give me a break. No wonder Christianity's in a sorry shape that it is. Boys and girls, you have three ministers to get down long before you ever get to something in this church. You got to learn first how to minister to the Lord. Then you got to learn how to minister to your wife or your husband and then your children and then other people. Now, somebody says, well, what about me? I'm not married. You have the best deal of it all. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 30 and 43, Paul says, But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried carry for the things that belong to the Lord, how it may please the Lord. But he that is married carry for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. Now let me explain what he's saying. He's not saying it's wrong to get married. But Paul does say that, that not being married and staying celibate is a gift. Not everybody can have, but Paul had it. And his first advice to anybody is to see if you have that gift because the bottom line is this. You can, you can focus more and do more and stay more on task for the Lord if you're single because you don't have to balance all the things around. You don't have to worry about a husband or a wife. You have the freedom to totally dedicate yourself to what God wants you to do. And when you get married down the line, there's nothing wrong with that. You learn how to balance it out. You get a husband or a wife who understands the same concepts, and then you work together and you make it work. That's why she's not called a helpmate. She's called a helpmeet. She helpmeet, M-E-E-T. She helps make the work easier by balancing it out and understanding what she needs to do. If you're single right now, I would, my advice to you is this. Take that time that God has given you. Hey, if, if, if you want a husband or you want a wife, God knows it more than you do. The last thing you want to do is get the wrong bozo or the wrong woman. He knows your heart and your desire more than you do. And in the right time, if that's what he wants, he'll have it, her, have him. You'll have everything you want. Your job is to not to focus on what you don't have, but focus on what you do have. And boy, we never get that concept. We always got to focus on what we don't have and never focus on what we do have. You have the greatest time in your life right now to get everything under your belt that you know exactly what God wants you to do and how to do it. I'm telling you. Now, maybe you're here in our church and you're divorced and you have several kids. And uh, you say, well, I don't have a husband, but yet I got kids I got to take care of. That's what this church is for. Let us help you with that. Let us be there to help you do what you got to do. What do you think church is for? Just so we can come and get everything from you and give you nothing back? That's our job. It's my job. The job of every man in this church is to look out there or young guys or young gals that, that don't have a, another spouse, whatever, and just kind of be there and help them along, recognizing the fact that that's a tough load to carry and, and help lift that burden. It's called labors together. We all have those three needs. 
And God's the only one that can fill them. And your job and my job in ministry is to meet those needs to the Lord first. Make sure he, he's already met yours. Make sure you meet his. And then he'll take you and allow you to meet others and their needs. Then we have the seventh great concept in verse 30. And I'm telling you, if you don't know what it means to minister to the Lord, I wouldn't let another day go by till I found out. He says there in verse 30, Do I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me? Then the last thing is this great fact, and that is the fact that we pray for each other. Now, I want you to note this because it's very important. This is the last thing he mentions. Does that mean anything to anybody that's paying attention? I mean, remember in Ephesians chapter 6 when he laid out the armor of God and he laid out the seven pieces given? You know the last thing he, piece he talked about in 6.18 was prayer? You know, the last thing in chapter, one of the last things in chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he closed that book out, one of the last things he says was pray without ceasing. You see, prayer in Paul's things is always listed last. It's not listed last because it's the least important. It's listed last because prayer is the glue that holds it all together. It's not listed last because, oh yeah, put prayer down. It's listed last because without that, nothing else matters. Prayer is the glue. It is the substance which holds everything together. I'm going to give you a great verse. When I was ordained into the ministry and I, I was leaving Ohio, come to Kansas City, Mel Sabaka, my father of the Lord, pulled me aside, put his arm around me and prayed with me. And he probably knew at that point that we didn't know when we'd see each other again or if we ever would. He was going to New York and I was going to Kansas City. That's quite a far piece. But he pulled me into his arms and he prayed with me and he said, I want to give you this verse. And this is the last verse he gave me when I left Canton some 35 years ago. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, and it's been my verse. Whether I've ever told you about it or not, it's been my verse for you in this church that are one with me in ministry. And it simply says this, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you that good and right way. You see, there's no, no profit in me getting up and trying to teach you the good and right way of the Bible if I'm not praying for you. Because prayer is the substance that holds it all together. I showed you a couple of weeks back the life of Abraham and how through his progress in life and walk with God, you find the first time in the Bible that the word prayers are mentioned in Genesis 20, verse 17. In chapter 18, you find the model for your attitude in prayer. I gave it to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and I showed you why that 99.99999% of, of God's people's prayers never leave the room when they pray them. I told you about Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where it talks about, uh, it laid out the, uh, the infirmity that we don't know how to pray. And I told you that we as God's people have three infirmities. Romans six nineteen says we have an infirmity of the flesh. Psalm seventy seven ten tells us we have an infirmity, forget what God has done for us. And Romans eight twenty six tells us that we have the infirmity that we don't know how to pray and don't pray the right way. 
The power of God in our lives will always be in direct proportion to the power of prayer in our lives. This is why our prayer groups are so important. This is why, as I told you yesterday and the men last week, this is why you've seen the face of our church completely change. You don't know what it means to walk in here on Sunday morning and see 40 ladies up there and 20 down here praying. And the men getting off in their little groups. You don't know what it does because you don't understand the concept of the prayer is the thing that pulls it all together. We had to learn to get to this point. It wasn't something we could start. What is the point of praying when you don't know what and how to pray? We had to take a long time and work it out and get it to the place where we got a good foundation in this church that understands the concepts, and now it's changing everything about us exactly the way that it should. I, t- I told you in the Old Testament tabernacle, I showed you how that, <clears throat> that is such a beautiful picture of you and me. It's a picture that when you saw that tabernacle, if you'd be walking through the desert and you walked up on this tabernacle, from the outside it looked like a, just a regular tent. It was covered with animal skins. And it was covered with skins all the way around and it was nothing any different from any other tent you could buy at a used Army-Navy store. But what was on the inside was what counted. And you see, that's a picture of you and me. And that tabernacle, the skin of animals covered the outside... But the glory of God was on the inside. And you and me, the skin of human flesh covers the outside, but it's the glory of God that's really on the inside. And at 40 years, they wandered through the wilderness till they got to a place where God said, okay, now it's going to be permanent. That's a picture of your life and my life. That's a picture of your life and my life, wandering through the wilderness of sin, wandering through all of the things that we we have to go through. And then finally getting to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. And yet within that tabernacle, you have everything that you need in the ministry. You have the brazen altar where the sacrifice, that represents Calvary. When you walked into that door, there was a laver there of water that you had to wash your feet off because there was no floor in the tabernacle and a priest had to stay clean. And it's a picture of your life and my life before we do ministry, washing off the filth of this old world that's gotten on our feet before we go in. And then you went into that place. On one side was the showbread, baked fresh every day. Picture of the Word of God. Twelve for each, one for each tribe, but laid out six, 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 and then six because it's a picture of the Word of God. And there's 66 books in your Bible. Then on the other side, you had the seven-pronged candlestick, and that's a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. It's completely dark in there. And when the priest come out of that blazing sun of the Sinai desert and he walked into that dark room where there was no light whatsoever but that candlestick, it was a lot like you and I walking out of the bright sunlight going into a movie theater. You know what you better do? You better stop for a minute and let your eyes adjust to the dark because you're going to step over somebody and kill them if you don't. So when that priest went in there, he had to stand still. He was in the place of ministry, but he could not yet see everything clearly. So he waited till his eyes adjusted to the dark. That's a picture of some of you. You walked into this church, and you come in from the world, or maybe you come in from churches that didn't, it it was the sunlight of this old life, and you're now into a place where there's ministry, and you just got to stand still for a few minutes. You got to grow a little bit, and you got to let your eyes get accustomed to the, the difference of the light. In that area, everybody did the ministry. Ah, but up in the corner, right before you went into the Holy of Holies, there was a censer of incense. 
And that's a picture of our prayer life. And I told you that the candlesticks had to be lit every, that they couldn't go out. They had to be lit. The incense had to stay lit. And where they got the fire for that lighting of that incense and got the fire for that was off the brazen altar where the sacrifice was crucified, killed. Because real prayer and real ministry always has to go back to the place where Christ died for you on Calvary's cross. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished. Not finished, furnished. You know why? Because the furnishings in that tabernacle was a picture of everything spiritual in our lives. It said truly. Your new Bible says thoroughly. It's truly. Because you've heard me teach it many, many times. It starts on the inside and then it comes out. You see, you have to get those three basic needs met in your life first from him. You grow up and you make those three basic things that he needs fulfilled in his life. And your marriage is a picture of that. Your marriage today is an exact picture of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't meet his needs anymore than you meet hers. You don't know how to minister to the Lord. You don't even know how to minister to your wife. You don't understand his sensitivity of his spirit. You have no idea of hers. You don't realize that you have to work at meeting them first instead of demanding she meets you on equal terms. If God would have done that to you and me, we'd have all been a mess. Ye that are strong out to bear the infirmities of the weak. He was strong, I was weak. He bore my infirmities and fulfilled my three needs first. She's the weaker vessel. You have to fulfill hers first before you can expect her to fulfill yours. What foreign doctrine is that? Well, next week we're going to look at the last chapter. And we're going to see some insight into Paul himself. We're going to see and through as the closing of his book, he reveals who he really is, how he looks at things, how he deals with things. And there's some great things in this chapter. Let me say this to you. Do what you want to do. I wouldn't go another day. I wouldn't go another hour. I wouldn't do one single thing today before I found out what it means in the Bible to minister unto the Lord. He has some needs. He has physical needs. He needs a body. He has, he, has a, he has emotional needs. He needs you not to grieve him. And he needs to be ministered to. Think about it. Think about it. I can't even imagine somebody trying to minister before the Lord without ministering to the Lord. And yet, I guarantee you, Never mind. This is the state of Christianity today. Oh, we talk about being God's people. We talk about being Christ-like. But in reality, the Christ of the Bible is so far where our lives are as Christians. We just go through the motions. We're all like the little rats in a little maze that are just trying to get the cheese at the end of the tunnel, which is our heaven. We bump our noses and twist our ankles and bump into everything when God says you don't have to do that. God has a plan for your life. The only decision you got to make is, I'm going to fulfill it or I'm not. But if you decide to, you got to do it his way. 
He doesn't care where you've been or what you've done. He wants you to learn the biblical principles that you fulfill those three things in his life first as he's fulfilled them in yours. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you.